Well, here at Friendship Community Church, we are committed to uh, what's been called expository preaching. I'm like, well, it's a big word, right? But if you kind of break it down, it's just exposing, right? Expository exposing and just walking line by line, word by word through the text because the text is everything we need for life and godliness, right? And so that's what we're committed to on a regular basis. Today, though, we're going to take a slight sidestep because... Um, I'm not going to say I was totally caught off guard, if you will. I'm headed up to Altoona this afternoon to teach a class, um, and I've kind of truncated a three-hour lesson into a sermon. So if we're like one o'clock, someone start doing the wave, right? Um, and today, again, it's teaching. It's not necessarily preaching, right? The difference being teaching is just more like academic here and then here and then here, whereas preaching is um, more for the will and to inspire action according to the word. Make sense? Today's going to be slightly more teaching than that um, application side of preaching. Make sense? All right. And, and today's title, if you will, is The Story of His Glory. So if, if we go back to Sunday school, um, I have a question for you, and I were to ask you the main point of the Exodus, what would so many of us say was the main point of the Exodus? Right? Whenever you get oppressed, God's going to save you, right? Now, of course, I'm shortening, right? but God will save people who are oppressed, or David and Goliath. The main point sometimes that's communicated is face your giants, right? Fight the giants fiery furnace in the lion's den. It's like, when no one else stands up, stand up. Now, if I ask what those main points communicate, in other words, who do they communicate is the core of the story? Who's at the center of the story? Um, if, if you read through the lines, who do these things, God will take care of the oppressed person. Face your giants. You stand up when no one else stands up. We're implying that who's the center of the story? I am. We are. People are. And despite really good intentions, sometimes we see and we read through the Bible, not necessarily the story of God, but we see the story of me. So today we're going to walk through the story of God. So I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Luke.
Don't you see what this is about? Don't you see in all the scriptures these things concerning me? And so he starts to open them up and he shares the story. That's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to um, go through the entire Bible here this morning. The ladies are doing it in Sunday school. And so, um, ladies, if, if uh, your appetite's whetted, if you will, spend um, some time going through an overview of the Bible with the ladies at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. Um, let's press on. Verse 28 and verse 29. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and he was at the table with them. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them, who were gathered together. And that's where we will leave it. But notice here in verse 31, when their eyes were opened, Jesus was spending all that time on the road, seven miles Right? Seven miles, Jesus is explaining everything from Moses and through the prophets, through all his scripture concerning himself. And here in verse 31, they're saying, did not our hearts burn within us as he was talking? Didn't we see that this story in this book is absolutely about him? And that's what our hearts were made to do, isn't it? We want to set our hearts on something. We want to set our hearts on winning something. We want to set our hearts on someone. There's always something we want to set our hearts on. And here they accurately say our hearts burned as he was sharing this story with us. This, Jesus' last words to them that we read are in verse 26. Was it not necessary... Actually, let's read verse uh, 25 first. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, what? All that the prophets had spoken. So the prophets told you this was going to happen. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Interesting. So he had to suffer before he entered into his glory, which begs the question, what is glory? Now, um, Rich read for us Psalm 96 earlier. And in Psalm 96, um, and aside, by the way, we're going to be bouncing around the Bible. So I have references on the screen that you can write down if you would like. But if, if you're thumbing through, I don't know, you're going to have to be like the speed drill master. So um, you can just jot them down uh, as, as we go throughout, uh, throughout uh, the Bible this morning. Psalm 96. Verse 3 says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples, the nations, all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens, it says. You see, God is showing, the psalmist David in this case, is showing that God, he's telling us that God has made himself known. He's made his glory known there in verses 3 to 6. Why? 
God made his glory known to people by making the heavens and by saving them. Why? In verse 7, 8, and 9, to ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So there in the first few verses, we see that God is revealing his glory to people. Why? In order to receive glory. God's revealing his glory to all the peoples, to all the nations, in order to receive the glory from all of them. Which then again begs that question, what is glory? Simply stated, intrinsic value, worth, heaviness, some people have said. Splendor and beauty. So God reveals his glory to us so that we can in turn give it back to him. And so Jesus started with Moses. So let's start with Moses, right? This is Exodus. Now, if you want to turn to Exodus, um, you're welcome to. We'll be there for a little bit. Here in the Exodus, remember what happened beforehand. God chose a man by the name of Abraham, saying, Through Abraham shall all the world be blessed. I will bless you, Abraham, so everyone else can be blessed. There's big famine in the land. They leave the land, and they go down to Egypt. In Egypt, they become slaves, right? And so here in Exodus is where we pick up the story where God shows up through Moses. And what do we always remember Moses saying to King Pharaoh? Let my people go. But somehow we always put an exclamation point there, don't we? But if you look at the text, there's not an exclamation point. There's a comma. Why is there a comma? What's the purpose of letting my people go? That they may serve me. So this is one of the things to keep your eyes out this morning. And any time that we open up the Bible, we call them purpose statements. We see them all time and time again throughout the Bible. Comma, that. Comma, so that. Because. In order to. Then. Anytime we see these words... We have an idea that what's coming next is the purpose for which the first thing said. Make sense? Why are the Israelites to go? That they may serve God. Now, the word here, serve, um, in the original language is the same word as worship. Let my people go that they may worship me. That's what we see. And so we might call this the, um, the great display if you will. God is going to get his glory over and above these folks, over and above everyone. This is Exodus chapter 9, uh, verse 13. Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, now again, keep your eye on those purpose statements. As we read this, there's at least two in here. Actually, three if you include that one. Let my people go, that they may serve me. One. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people. He's speaking to Pharaoh. Why? So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 
Why are the plagues coming? So you'll know there's no other God in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. I could have killed you, but you're alive. Why? Verse 26. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed where? In all the earth. You see, God is not relished to be just the God of this little geography or this little teeny tiny people in, at this stage in the game. No, he is set up to the creator of everything, is set up to be the God of everything. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's singling himself out. He's saying, you guys have like all these like little gods, right? You have the, the rain god, you got the this god, you got the that god, and they almost need a dictionary of gods, if you will. Um, but this is the one God. There is no other like me. We see it again in 12.12. Um, 12. God says, why are the plagues coming? Here's why. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Judgments. I will expose them. They're phonies. They're not real. I'm here to judge them, to set up. Why? For I am the Lord. Okay, plagues come, people go. Pharaoh says, just go. So they go. And um, what leads them? The pillar of fire and the cloud. Okay. So God himself, his spirit, leads the people, and they don't go through this place purposefully. They don't go through Philistia. They go by the way of the Red Sea. Hmm. Don't they know there's a sea there? Now, this is Exodus 15. Feel free to turn there if you want. We'll be camped out here for a moment. Excuse me, Exodus 14. 14 is where we will start. Now, this is one of those bumper sticker Bible verses that kind of like is very us-focused. And that's a beautiful thing. But we also must recognize that it's primarily about him. 14.14, right? The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent, right? It goes on, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, the Israelites. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You see it? The purpose is always, I am the Lord. I am the only one. Now, they have a sea right next to them. They can't go anywhere. All these Israelites. Verse 7, um, 18 and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And what happens next? They're between, the Israelites are between a rock and a hard place, or in this case, a body of water and the mighty army. And God gets glory over them, doesn't he? The, the sea parts, they walk across on the dry ground, Pharaoh and his enemies come in, Pharaoh and his chariots come in, who gets the glory? And what's the response? It's Exodus 15. This is the response. Um, Zeb preached through this in our series this past summer when scripture shapes our singing. Verse 31, um, the previous verse says this. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Israel saw what God did against them, and what was their response? So the people feared the Lord. Okay, now they're starting to fear him. And they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. He revealed his glory to them, that he's bigger and better whenever he parts the Red Sea and gets the the, uh, glory over the enemy, over Pharaoh. Now they return and worship. They feared the Lord, and now they believe him. And they break out in song. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my salvation and my song, and he has become my salvation. That is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's glory, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Catch this, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Let's pause here. Verse 11 gives us a clue. They're calling God holy, saying God's on a whole other story of the building. He's he's not even on the same level as humans. He's not on the same level as some of those other false gods. He's way up here. He's holy. He's set apart among all the gods. Awesome and glorious deeds. Now take note of that too. We're going to be tracing that throughout. God is awesome, singular, and holy among all the gods. We're going to be tracing that through the rest of the story. Verse 13. You have led... In your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. That's two. Not only is this God awesome and powerful, but we see that four-letter word show up. The love word shows up. Not only is he glorious and mighty, but he has steadfast love for his people. This is totally different than all the other gods, the ones that whenever you go to sacrifice to, you like sacrifice to them in order to get something. You have to appease them. You got to make sure you keep them happy with you. Otherwise, you don't get rain and you don't get rain. You don't get a crop, right? This God loves his people. It's different. So he's glorious and mighty and he's loving. Verse 14 says, uh, the end of 13, you've guided them. By your strength to your holy abode. God's leading them to his holy abode, to his, himself. Verse 17 says, you will bring them in and you will plant them on your mountain, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This is that third thing to keep in mind. We see the establishment, if you will, of a a place, not necessarily a physical place, but a place where God is, where his abode is, where he's leading people to himself. It's like this people is living. He's going to plant these people. They're a living thing almost, aren't they? And so this God, if he's all about the nations noticing him, 
and see in his glory through the exodus, did the nations actually pick up? Did they actually notice? Uh, Chapter 18 gives us an indication. You don't need to turn there. Um, But 18.10, Jethro shows up. Jethro is the priest of Midian. He is the head honcho, the real deal, the guy who literally runs the religion of the place of Midian. He says, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Catch this. Now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. He's got to run a religion tomorrow. And today he's saying, he's going public with something saying, he's better than all of them. Even the one that I'm supposed to like run the religion for. He is better. This display of the Exodus is proven to the onlooking world that God is the king of the universe. Jethro then goes to set up a worship event, and they they start they basically have a big party, right, in fellowship, and they rejoice in worship for the Lord for the mighty things that He has done. People rebel, right? Back to the the big high story. The people rebel, and then after forty years, they're on the cusp of getting into the promised land, right? And um, we pick up on this story. And um, you're welcome to turn here too. Deuteronomy 12. We don't often spend much time in Deuteronomy. But we'll see a few things here. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, we'll see the establishment as they're about to go into the land that God has, that God is bringing them to, as he brings them to himself. We've learned quite a few things here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. God's bringing them to his abode, to his place. We'll start in verse 2, and we're going to bounce around, so be ready with your eyes if you're following along. Twelve Deuteronomy 12, 2. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains... And on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars. He's going on and on and on, saying about there can't be any mixed worship here. It has to be dedicated to the one true God. It's a purity of worship is what really matters. You can't mix it in. We'll see this come into play later in the story. Verse 7. He's telling in verse 7 how you ought to worship. Now. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You can't get away from this blessing. He's going to bless you so you can be a blessing. And what's this worship look like? Eating, rejoicing, in all that you undertake before the Lord is a worship in return back to God. Verse 8, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone who is doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not 
have you not as yet come to the rest of the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you? But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that your Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies, so that you live in safety, then to the place, there's that key word, place, that the Lord your God will choose. Why? Why is he choosing a place? To make his name dwell there. And he goes on, talks about sacrifices. There's a place that God is choosing to make his name dwell there. And as they go on with the sacrifices, here's what's interesting. So many of the sacrifices in scripture, actually most of them, aren't atonement or sin related. Those are just the ones we focus on, right? Because sometimes we make the story about ourselves. But so many, most of the sacrifices in the Old Testament are about giving worship to God, about glorifying God. And here we see, if you're welcome to read later, um, but you see how they do that, how they worship God with sacrifices. And typically, like, they, God gets his portion, then we get our portion, the priest gets their portion, right? It's kind of like a huge party, if you will. Um, but the point is, it's not about us. And God is choosing a place to make his name dwell there. We see that language again. God is passionate about his name. His name is going to dwell there. Why? Why? Well, David picks it up. Why is God making his name to dwell in a place? Um, if you go back and you, you read through some things, in this place, it's not an idea of God is physically going to come here, per se. Now, the tabernacle had a, a name, another name. It wasn't tabernacle. It was the tent of meeting. This idea of place is that God's drawing people to himself, to encounter him, to meet with him. And that's where his abode is. That's where, his, um, that's where he will dwell, to draw people to encounter him and to worship him. David, we fast forward, what, a few hundred years. David wants to build a house for God, doesn't he? He wants to build the temple. Say, God, I have this nice house. You should too. Let me build a house for you. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to let your son build this house for me, a place for my name to dwell where people can encounter me. And so Solomon builds. Actually, let's, uh, before we go there, um, a place for his name. Rich read Psalm 96 for us earlier. Psalm 96 comes from that moment when David, in 1 Chronicles, prays a prayer of thanksgiving when the Ark of the Covenant comes back to the tabernacle. Right? It was taken for uh, years by the Philistines, and it comes back into the tabernacle. And David is just so overwhelmed with joy that he screams forth this psalm. He gives it to Asaph and says, Asaph, here, sing this. Right? Um, that's First Chronicles 16. And then Psalm 96 is a little bit like, it, it's the edited version. It's cleaned up. Right? But it's the focus of, just listen to these words. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. 
For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Sound familiar? You see, David understood what God was about. He understood God's passions. He was a man after God's own heart, by the way, wasn't he? Ascribe to the Lord. I'm reading out of the Chronicles account. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, glory and strength, the glory do his name. See, David was not some like, all right, God, you're only going to be the God of Israel and you're just going to be for us. It's, it's for everyone. If you actually look at the story of David and Goliath, it's not about me. David explicitly says, I come before you so that all the world may know that there is a God in Israel and that God saves not by might. That there's a God in Israel. See, David saw this, that God was too big to be just this little people. So his son, Solomon, builds the temple and there's glory there in, in his dedication prayer. He actually prays for the foreigner. Here are his exact words. He says, um, he says, when the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake. You see it. Again, it's God's name. Why are they coming to Israel? For God's name. And then there's a parenthetical. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Yeah, God, it's, it's going to happen. Some parentheses, by the way. It's almost an aside, but it's kind of the point. They're going to hear. They can't not hear. And again, I asked the question, when that temple, which was so glorious, was built, did the nations take notice? Did non-Israelites take notice? Well, absolutely. The very next two chapters later, we see that the Queen of Sheba shows up. And she's like, yeah, I really know how, uh, how this whole making yourself look good, making yourself look powerful thing goes. We all do it. I'm a queen after all. We do it so that you won't come and battle us. And the bigger we look, the more scared you're going to be. Right? She gets it. We cook the books to make ourselves look good. And so she takes this journey from Ethiopia on the way up to Israel. And it says in 1 Kings 10, 5, after she saw everything, the word is this. It says, her breath was taken away. Her breath, there was no more breath in her. She says, the half has not been told to me. There's more. This God that you worship is so big and beautiful and majestic and powerful. It wasn't that you did like some rain dance, right? No. He's just pouring out his blessing. And she says later on, happy are your men and your servants who continually stand before you and your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you. There's that love portion and set you on the throne because the Lord loved Israel forever. You see the relationship that God's having with his people there? Now, what happens after all of this? What does Israel, uh, Solomon kind of get wrapped up into? He, um, if the heading, two headings later, it says, Solomon turns from the Lord. And Right when it looks like Israel is finally going to do what it's supposed to do, they fail. They turn from the Lord. They start following all these other false gods. What would have happened if Sheba, Queen Sheba, showed up a few chapters later? Hmm. Yeah, it's not really what it is. Yeah, you're doing such and such a rain dance, right? And um, yeah, that crop god. Yeah, you must be appeasing them. But no. No. 
It's, it's going down and it's profaning God's name. Now, that word profaning, we always say profanity. What does it really mean? It really just means to make common something that's beautiful, something that's intrinsically glorious or uh, worth something. That's why using the Lord's name in vain is so bad. It's so wrong because we are profaning or making common something that is far more glorious than we can ever dream or imagine. They profane God's name. And now we have the great delay, the pumping on the brakes of what appears, the pumping on what appeared to have been God's plan. And we pick up in Jeremiah 7. Um, I'll read this to you. This is Jeremiah 7. This is where Jesus later quotes, The den of robbers, you've made my temple, you've made my house the den of robbers. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after all the other gods, and then come and stand before me in my house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on and do these same abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name? You see, God is continually describing this house, this temple, as being called by his name become a den of robbers in your eyes. I have seen it, declares the Lord. Now go to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Now because you have done these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will Due to the house that is called by my name, a.k.a. the temple, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. Translation, Shiloh's destroyed. God's essentially saying, I'm going to destroy the temple. What? Huh? Why? How? We see it here in Jeremiah 7. God's saying, I'm going to do to the temple what I did to Shiloh because you weren't obedient and you didn't worship me and you didn't follow my plan for your life. And then the exile happens. A guy by the name of Ezekiel shows up. Prophecy of Ezekiel. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake Oh, house of Israel, that I am about to act. Well, that kind of puts a damper on uh, humanism, doesn't it? It's but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations. And I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Verse 27. God says, excuse me, 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. 27, I'll catch this joy. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. 
kind of hurts for us, doesn't it? What are my ways? Lord, where am I not lining up and matching up to what you would have? It's 36. Why is this going to happen? 36 says, Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places. I have replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. The beautiful thing here is God saying, It doesn't matter. Yes, my, my glory is first and foremost, and also my love, my steadfast love is still there. So even whenever you're going in a downward spiral, I am still there. Yes, I'm worried about my name. But what's it say here? And this is a beautiful promise. God's persistence, his promise is that he will put his name, he will put his spirit within these people. This is kind of messianic. He's also talking about Jesus as well, Aaron Ezekiel. My servant David shall be king over them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's the purpose statement. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Who sanctifies Israel. Now catch this part. When my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Whoa, 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 Lord, I thought your sanctuary was in this temple. Saying, no, my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Translation. Jesus shows up on the scene. He actually quotes some of these verses um, during Holy Week. The Messiah. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus is quoting some of these passages saying, yes, the, dem- the temple will be destroyed. There's a new one at that point. Right? That temple is going to be destroyed and I will rebuild it when I come back to life. I will rebuild it in three days. And I, what on earth do you mean? You can't tear down this building and um, build it back up in three days. That's impossible, Jesus. But he's saying... I will rebuild it by my life, by my new covenant. When I put my spirit within you, and my sanctuary will be in the midst of them. Translation, is God talking about building a new temple, a new house, a new building of worship, physical building? No. He's talking about building a church, building a people who are called by his name to glorify his name, to share in the glories of his name with worship. You see in it? And so, I ask you, Jesus himself, Mark eleven seventeen 17 said, he quoted these passages alluding to the fact that the temple's going to be and there's going to be this new covenant by the power of his blood. And Jesus says, my food is to do the Father's will. When he was in Gethsemane, right there at that moment, probably when the biggest human element of his life was, was there, saying, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. Right, Lord? What's that mean for me? Not what 
I will, but what you will. And if we're here to model Christ today, we've got to be saying, Lord, what is it in my life? Not what I will, but what you will. If Jesus had to suffer on the road to Emmaus, he tells us that Christ must suffer to enter into his glory. His glory. He reveals his glory so that he can receive glory. We are part of that new temple, if you will, where God chose to put his spirit within us. So then the question is, if we're here to give glory to God if, so that his name can be proclaimed among all the world, do we have a duty to proclaim his nation, to proclaim his name among all the nations? Absolutely. But catch this, church. It's not just the duty. How many of your kids have like really dirty rooms or messy rooms? They have a duty to clean their rooms, right? But duty doesn't sustain you when life gets tough. What sustains you? Love. Passion for the glory of the Lord is what sustains us through the hard things. It's a passion for his name that sustains us. Duty's good and it can be compelling. But if there's only duty, if you're in the darkness of a mission field, you're going to be leaving after a few months. If there's only duty, you're going to give up. But if it's the passion for his name, the story of his glory that's from cover to cover, it's, it's sustainable, isn't it? God chooses us, the local church. And I felt called the ministry. I really, really, really did not want to be in the local church context. Not one bit. It's messy, right? But we're dealing with lives and we're part of lives and suffering. And you just got to walk through hard things with folks. But it's clear that the local church, right, vis-a-vis -vis or um, according to Ephesians chapter 3, the local church is the primary work of God in the world. That's us. That's us. Each and every day. We are, li uh, listen to these words. It's too good to pass up. Paul's writing, Ephesians 3. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made no not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been, made, been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by his spirit. Here's the mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. You see, God's global purpose from day one to day eternity. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery that was hidden? Okay, there's a mystery. God's bringing all nations to himself. What's the plan? Here's the plan. You have a part in this plan. You have a part in this story. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, there's one of those purpose statements, through the church, through us, through the ones that he put his spirit into, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through us, his wisdom might be made known to the onlooking world. And so we have a part to play in the story. And the story ends. Well, actually, it continues for eternity. But we, we read part of the end. In Revelation 15, depending on how you uh, interpret Revelation, well, good luck. Um, 
It's literally the last recorded song, if you will. This is it. This is where everything's going. Where all the world is going is Revelation 15, where every nation, tribe, and tongue, where God's going to get all this glory, where the glory of his name, where we will ascribe the worship to his name. Fifteen verse three. The people standing around. They sing, says, and they sing. Well, so we're going to be singing the song of Moses. Interesting. That's that one from Exodus chapter fifteen, the one that whenever God was going global with His name, the one that the Israelites sang. That's likely what it is. We don't know for sure, certain. But they're singing a song of Moses, the man that God used when he was making his name known globally. The song of Moses. The servant of God. And they also sing the song of the Lamb. Saying, great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. His righteous acts have been revealed. Um, I've heard it said that worship is the only thing that we're occupied with today that demands our attention today with which we will continue to be occupied in eternity. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Worship is not just singing, but rejoicing in God, giving him the glory of his name. It's not ever going to stop, by the way. And so, church, I ask you, I beg you, what is it that each and every one of us need to do differently today, this week? Maybe it's just opening our Bibles and seeing some of these purpose statements on how God's going to be a global God. He will be worshiped by everyone, keeping our eyes open for that. Maybe it's just opening up this book this week. Maybe saying, Lord, you, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to enter his glory. So whatever it is I'm wrestling through, I know it will be for your glory. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we trust you to help each and every one of us with this, to see the purpose of your word, to see your passion through the pages of scripture, Lord, to see in and through and around everything, what you are purposing to do, that all nations will serve you, that you will be glorified, your name will be given renown, and Lord, that you also desire a relationship with us, with your people, so that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on earth, in heaven, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, help us as we wrestle with these things now in our hearts and minds on how we ought to obey, what we ought to do as we seek to just worship you wholeheartedly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.